RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy, as always, to have you here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. And the Royal Rumble is over. I was wrong. I admit it. Chris Jericho was not there. As a matter of fact, other than Jeff Jarrett, there was nobody there uh, that wasn't uh, under WWE contract of some sort. Uh, But uh, I was wrong about Chris Jericho. I had texted him... uh, Right after we taped the last week's and, you know, he wouldn't have told me anyway, but he he said he's persona non grata uh, there, uh, which made me think even more that he was going to be on the on the Royal Rumble because, like, you know, sometimes you protest too much. But uh, I was wrong. And so uh, I hope you didn't bet any money, which I warned you not to. Uh, It was fun to see Jeff Jarrett. I guess he. I guess he's under WWE contract now. So everybody was under WWE contract. So no one-off surprises. Uh, great to see Jeff, and uh, uh, he's uh, been on television. And I believe, from what I know, from what I've heard, he uh, he is a producer now for that company and on-air talent. So uh, you know, he's a friend of the show and a friend of mine. So I wish Jeff nothing but the best. But it was fun to see him kick off the show and uh, do his stuff. I always love before he does the strut when he he takes his hands and his two uh, two first and second finger on both sides and pushes you know put ask the guy to move aside. It was so funny he would do that even if there's nobody there. We'd be on some house shows and there would be nobody there for WCW. He'd still do it just because it was part of his routine. I'd be like Jeff, there's nobody to push aside. He's like, I don't care, it's my gimmick. But. Uh, that was good to see, and uh, always fun nostalgia. Uh, not as much nostalgia in the Royal Rumble as normal, but uh, a lot of the players from NXT and WWE UK, my son had been uh, touting Pete Dunne for a long time, and I never got to see Pete Dunne, and uh, finally got to see him. So that was fun. and got to, I, I, You know, you can say what you want about WWE, whether you like their stories or not, or whether you like their direction or not. But I think as far as talent goes, when you see the depth that they have, uh, I think that as far as talent goes, they're in a good spot uh, for a long time. Now, that may not change creative and uh, all that, but I think talent-wise, they're doing pretty well. Um, also watched the uh, Ricochet-Gargano match from TakeOver, NXT TakeOver. Uh, what a match. If you haven't watched that, I would, and you have the WWE Network, I would encourage you to go back and watch it. I, as everybody knows, I'm a big fan of uh, Ricochet. We mentioned it last week with Dave Finley. And a uh, big fan of his. I think he could go all the way if given the opportunity. And they just did some really cool spots. He did a spot where he took a Hearn Karana and landed on his feet. And the crowd, what a spot. I popped. Uh, back to the Royal Rumble, and then we'll get on to today's guest, who's uh, one of the greatest storytellers in the history of the business, Dirty Dutch Mantel. One more thought I had mentioned about Brock Lesnar's match last last week. I know not everybody is a fan of the Lesnar matches on the big pay-per-views. I really thought 
when he was selling his uh, his stomach, I really thought that they were going to put it on Balor. I he's there's something about him that he's such a monster, and when he starts selling, you think that there's a chance, no matter how small or big the other guy is. There's it's like a UFC fight. You almost you think that there's a chance, and you're excited to see the finish. So I don't know. I put something on Twitter, and some people said, "Oh, it's the same thing every time." But I really enjoy it. I really enjoyed the big Brock Lesnar matches. Uh, I enjoyed the Royal Rumble, even though there weren't the nostalgia surprises. A lot of the underneath talent that will make their way up through the ranks. So I thought that was fun, but I was wrong on Jericho, and uh, I'll take the heat. But uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I've been wanting to have this person on. Uh, He's a wrestler. He's a booker. He's a book writer. Uh, He was a podcast host and one of the not only most creative people in the wrestling business, but one of the best storytellers of all time. And I'm really looking forward to the next hour plus of talking with my guest. Please welcome Dirty Dutch Mantel to City Ringside. Very happy this week on City Ringside to have, you know, I always have a uh, bucket list of guests and uh, most of the people on the bucket list are great storytellers. And uh, uh, my next guest is not only, in my opinion, a Hall of Famer, uh, deservedly so, but uh, one of the best storytellers in the business and uh, very happy to have him. Uh, Dutch Mantel, welcome to City Ringside. Happy that you, uh, you came on. I know you don't do this very often. No, I don't do it very often. I'm glad to be here, Dave, and I'm glad you uh, I, you, you 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 brought this up to me like a, I guess a couple of years ago, and I was doing uh, a podcast of my own at that time, which is a whole different other world of storytelling. But uh, yeah, and I've been known to to tell a few stories along the way because I've written two books. One was called uh, The World According to Dutch, which you can still buy, by the way, on Amazon. Or you can contact me and I'll give you an autographed copy. And the second one was called Tales from a Dirt Road. And what these, these books did was I just told stories, old stories that the old timers had told me. And, and I learned all these stories. And actually, this is how I learned the wrestling business was, you know, riding in the backseat or mostly driving at night with the old timers so they could drink beer and I could drive and they would tell me these stories. And I remembered most of them and if they're not passed down or moved along, they'll just go into the dustbin of history and nobody ever know about it. So that's how I learned the business. But anyway, glad glad to be here and uh, ask me a question. Let's start talking. So um, I'm, I, I believe you grew up in South Carolina. Uh, is that correct? <laughs> Yeah, I try to keep that as quiet as possible. Oh. Day truth. Oh, sorry. You ever been to South Carolina much? You ever been there? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. Well, uh, let me say this: South Carolina years ago was like uh, really a fucking third world. <laughs> if, I, I swear to God, if I <laughs> when I was like two years old, I wanted to crawl to the state line. I pull on a pair of knee pads and crawl to the state line to get out of that place. But it's, it's, it's not a bad state now, but it used to be a very, uh, when it's rural, it's just country, the whole state. Yeah. The whole state doesn't have a city more than probably 200,000 people in it. Maybe not that, maybe 150,000. Towns f- are not very big, but they're historical towns, yeah. and there's a lot of history there, so that's where I grew up. One of my favorite buildings to ring announce uh, of all time is the uh, township at uh, Columbia, South Carolina. I'm sure you've worked there, mm-hmm. but it uh, just has a... A, 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 classic, kind of, a, a classic building. Yeah. 
And a lot of buildings, a lot of buildings back in those days were built along the lines of the township. Uh, you've been to Augusta? Yeah, that's another great one. That's that's another built along the same line. Chattanooga, Tennessee, is also built along those. You know, those. It wasn't very big. Probably a township. I don't know how many people you get in there. Five thousand, maybe. Yeah, three, maybe four thousand, maybe five. Yeah, it wasn't very big, and uh, and the arenas in South Carolina just they just they aren't big. And the reason they're not big because you don't have a lot of people living there. Sure. So, and that was always like when I used to work in Memphis, they'd send us to the bum buck towns forever. And this is how you knew when you went into a town, and like we call it a spot show, how we knew it wouldn't draw. So, and this is the days before GPS. We just had Rand McNally road maps. Yeah, of course. So we'd we'd find our way to the town, but we didn't know where for where the uh, the matches were being held. So we would stop at like a Seven Eleven or a Minute Mart or whatever they had then. <laughs> No, I'm laughing because I'm hey, laughing uh, because we did the same thing. I know exactly what you're going to say, yeah, but go on. Yeah, where are they having the matches? And they went, "What matches? The wrestling <laughs> matches." They say, "Well, I ain't heard nothing about no wrestling matches." And that's when you knew that nobody that you wasn't going to draw the match because nobody knew where it was. <laughs> then we say, "Well, we heard it was at such and such a high school. How do you get there?" And he says, "Well." uh Let's see. Go down here to the light and turn. No, no, no. Don't do that. Go back the other way and turn left. You know, hell, they didn't even know their own town. But anyway, that's how that's how we used to get to the towns. But anyway, talking about the buildings, they all looked similar back in those days. Now uh, they've changed the style of the buildings, and they've gotten more. They gotten bigger and more functional. So, but you know, growing up down south and working down south is where I started. Was a was a whole new education. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, I used to ride in WCW well, before it uh, exploded for a little while uh, when the houses were, you know, we had like, we'd be lucky if we had 800 people in a building. And uh, and I'd drive with Arn Anderson and Pee Wee Anderson, uh, the referee, no relation. And, uh, and yeah, we'd do the same thing. We'd uh, go to the, uh, the gas station, you know, the one that seems to be in the middle of town, and say, uh, do, you yep. know where, do you know where World Championship Wrestling matches are? And if they said, who? What? Then Arn would give me that look, and he would give me that look. He said, "That ain't yeah. good. That ain't good. That ain't a good sign." <laughs> no, that's not a good sign. So and then I always said, "Why? Well, I, I ain't heard nothing heard. <laughs> I ain't heard nothing about no wrestling matches." But anyway, so but that's the way it was down so, down south, and it's a whole it's a whole new education. Now, you, now young guys today, I'm I'm banging around here, so all right. don't worry about that. But young guys today, you tell them that, they look at you like, the fuck you talking about? They, they, they can't even, they cannot conceive of where the business has come from. No. They don't realize the history of pro wrestling, nor do they show much inclination about learning it either. You didn't come along within the last 10 years with these young kids and nothing against them. Sure. But they don't know about you. Yeah. When I started with WWE back in, I think I started my, when I was Zeb, 2013. I walked in that dressing room, 75% of that roster had no idea who I was. Wow. They would look at me like, they'd look at me like, what the fuck is he? Who is he? And somebody said, oh, that's, that's Dutch. That, what the, never heard of him. And, uh, 
they finally, I guess, they found out. People told them they looked it up or something. But nobody knew who it was. Because kids today don't study the history. And, you know, if you don't study it, well, of course, that's, that's the job of Vince. Uh, because if you don't, the old saying, if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. Sure. Well, he knows history. He just changes the players all the time. So, sure. But uh, that was my, my first, my last run in WWE. Uh, it'd probably be my last run. But uh, but I enjoyed it and I had a good time there. That's Zeb Coulter. And a lot of people have, 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 have said that I was the reason that Donald Trump got elected. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. I don't believe that. But uh, but you know what I do think about Donald Trump. What do you I think? I do think he's an ac- accidental president. Accidental. That's what I think. You know why? Why? That's why I say this. I don't think he was serious about running for president. I thought. I, I think he started out just playing around. <laughs> then he saw the people kind of, and the more outlandish he became the more response he got. <laughs> and then he attacked. <laughs> I think the most surprised, they were two surprising, the most surprised people in the world on election night. <laughs> and that was Donald Trump that he won and Hillary that she lost. And the media. Both of them were just, they were just amazed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, you're probably right. But today, what a great, what a great time to be a journalist, though. Listen, you don't got to really do any work, really. You just go to sleep at night, and you get up in the morning, six, seven o'clock, and just read Trump's Twitter feed. And that tells you, that tells you all you got to say all day long. Well, Trump said this, and Trump said that. And I don't know if the media are just that stupid or just, but they he, they go wherever he takes them, and he is he he he, he plays them like a violin, if you ask me. And I think CNN and MSNBC and NBC and all those stations, they need to sit down at the end of the year, and they need to write Trump. Each one need to write Trump about a check, about $50 million. Because <laughs> that's what he's – that's all they talk about. And Fox, too. That's all they talk about is Trump, 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 and more Trump. I mean, I'm so trumped out. You know, if I never hear his name again, it'd be too sad. Yeah, I agree with you. But they did – they, they beat it to death. They do, they do. I guess and it, used to get. I guess people it, used to get so mad about it, and but now I don't. I think now people said, "I oh, what the hell? No need. It's not taking us anywhere." And I don't think he's done that bad of a job, really, to tell you the truth. But people won't give him credit, and even when he does get credit, it's not like uh, if they said, you know, if, if they did a report on Jesus, like Jesus walks on water. If that was Trump, they'd say Jesus can't swim. That's what they'd say. <laughs> He obviously, <laughs> you would know this terminology. He obviously draws money for the for the news networks because, uh, like you said, all they do is talk about him, whether it's bad or good or or somewhere in the middle. It's all. Oh, the, all they beat him to that. But I've also learned, you know, it's you can't talk about Trump. To certain people they won't listen to it. They'll cut you right off, and all of a sudden you you immediately. A guy can meet you at the door and shake your hand. Oh, I'm glad you're here. This, that, and that. And you say something good about Trump. Well, you immediately turn from a nice guy to a Nazi. Immediately. That's a pretty. That's a pretty quick turnaround, if you ask me. And then you become a. And it, it was a lot like the Zeb, the Zeb Coulter character. First of all, when I did the immigration thing, that was my whole deal. I was a racist, and I was a bigot. Then I was a. Uh, what do they call when you hate women? Misogynist. I was a misogynist and I was a xenophobe. 
when they call me a xenophobe, I mean, I got called everything. You know, I bet I blocked more people on Twitter. I bet I probably blocked, blocked four or 5,000 accounts. And I, and I didn't know what a xenophobe was. I had to go to Google and look it up. And then I found out you don't spell it with a Z. <laughs> it's actually spelled with an X. But it, anyway, I, I learned what a xenophobe was. I was gonna, anyway. We're going out of order here, but I was going to ask you about uh, Zeb Coulter. How much of that was ad-libbed uh, by you, and how much was that was written word for word by the writers? Uh, it was mostly ad-libbed. They just write out. They would just write out what they wanted me to say, and I would kind of throw the other stuff in there. It was. And I don't know whose idea Zeb Coulter was. I think it was Road Dog, to tell you the truth. I think they wanted uh, somebody to talk for Swagger and the real American. And and uh, WrestleMania 29, I think, was at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. Is that right? I believe so, yes. Anyway. But I was there, and, and, and Jack and I went out right before his match with Del Rio, and we did an interview, a live interview in the stadium. And, you know, it, it, it really is a rush when sometimes I've walked out in front of 82 people (laughs) (laughs) or eight people. (laughs) And then I walk out there in front of 82,000. It's a a rush. It really is. But I'm talking and I'm doing this bullshit interview and, and I was getting a response from the people. I really was. But I didn't know it at the time, but Trump was there. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, he he was up in the box. I didn't know he was there. So we finished the match, and Jack got beaten again for the 19th hundred time for Del Rio. So we made our way to the back, and I'm sitting in the viewing area. And that's where, you know, I have the big screens that I'm watching the rest of the show. And I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to Sandow, Damon Sandow. Right. And I saw Trump walk in. And he walks in with his two sons, Eric and I forgot the other one's name, Eric and Don Jr. Whatever. And Ivanka, I'm sorry, she was with him. And they walked in, but they just kept walking. And I said, well, they're going somewhere else. But I saw them come in. Wow. And uh, I'm talking to Sandow. And while I'm talking to Sandow, my back was to the where most of the people were. And I, I felt a peck on my shoulder. And I turned around, and I swear it was Donald Trump. Wow. He said, I heard your interview tremendous, tremendous, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> and he shook my hand, and he walked away. And I went... I'd be a son of a bitch. <laughs> and Sandow said, did that just happen? I says, I think so. <laughs> but when he walked away, you know, he walked away with my gimmick, I think, because <laughs> make America great again, it's just we the people on steroids. That's all it was. <laughs> so that was like... I so, guess when I started talking about immigration in that interview, and he was paying attention to it. So, so and then he started, I think he started running. The election was in 16, right? Yeah. I think he started running in, in, in two, he got serious about 2014. But I met him in 2013. So, so that's a good story, huh? Depend, yeah, depending on, on what your thought is on the President of the United States, either uh, you're the one that uh, put him on uh, his uh, pace to become president, or it's all your fault. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to who you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, who are you talking to? Yeah. But anyway, if he, if he uh, I don't think he's done that bad, to tell you the truth. I, I don't like a lot of stuff he does, but I think he's, he, he stays on Twitter too much. 
But like I said, the journalists, they should be glad he's on Twitter because he gives them their day's activities that they can go report on. But I don't think he's I don't sleep. care I don't what happens. He, I, I, happens. Blame it on Trump. <laughs> Hurricane hits Florida. Blame it on Trump. Hurricane hits Puerto Rico up. It's Trump's fault. Whatever. I, of that blown call in that Saints uh, Rams game, <laughs> Trump. I'm sure Trump had something to do with that too. If you just, I think you need to open an investigation into that. And that's what I'd do if I was if I was a Democratic congressman right now. I'd, <laughs> I'd be open, especially if I was from Louisiana. I'd be opening uh, up an investigation into it because he's got to have something to do with it. But anyway, of course. So. Uh- uh, we, I asked you about South Carolina, and um, I was I, the reason I asked you about that is I uh, was wondering if you were a wrestling fan growing up watching Jim Crockett promotions. It wasn't Jim Crockett promotions then. It was called, I didn't know what it was called, to tell you the truth. It was just wrestling. Yeah, it was just wrestling, you know. But, you know, even, listen, I'm old as hell. I'm about way too damn old to be doing this shit anyway. But, uh, you know, I grew up in the days of just black and white television and with just three channels. Can you imagine that today? Nope. Yeah, you know, you know it, was, it was three channels and didn't even have, you know, only had VHF stations. It was 2 to 13. It's all they had. And it, hey, well, when you went above 14, hell, that was high tech. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I think but, when I grew up, it, I think and they had it, it would come on and it. And while wrestling was so big, it was because, you know, it's, there was nothing on TV late at night. And it would come on, uh, usually come on Saturdays, and they had a station out of Greenville that had it like at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Then they had it uh, out of uh, Charlotte. <clears throat> I mean, uh, out of, <clears throat> excuse me, out of Asheville, North Carolina, we got that station. And it was on about 11. So you got the two separate tapes, but... And people who were just diehard wrestling fans and watch it. But I wasn't a diehard wrestling fan. You know, my brother was and my mother was. So they'd watch it. And I'd be like, I don't know, seven or eight years old, and I'd be flitting in and out of the room, but they'd be watching it. No, they'd be going crazy. They loved, they loved it. But even then, when I really started to sit down and took notice of it, you know, of course, the old, the old saying, oh, that's fake, that's fake, that's fake. Well, yeah, but it... I didn't care in those days anyway. I just kind of, when I did watch it, I did enjoy it. But I I knew early on that it was it was a show. Because I don't think you have to be a damn road scholar to figure that out. But, and it was, uh, even in black and white, it was actually some pretty good stuff. And which leads me to another thing, you know, TV got wrestling over. It is Americana. It's as American as damn McDonald's. Because it was one of the very few, you know, you know, contact sports that they were showing in, on TV at the time. And they didn't have the Olympics. They didn't have amateur wrestling. They didn't have boxing. They had wrestling and football, and that was it. So, but when you talk about wrestling back in those days, it's almost like, you know, I'm going to jump to another subject right now. Remember Jim Baker and the PTL club? Yeah. You remember that? You know yeah. why that got over? Why is that? I'll tell you why I got over. Because late at night, you remember the stations used to go dark after 12 or 1 o'clock yeah, in the morning? they played the National Anthem. Yeah, they played the National Anthem, and they would go to like that damn uh, Chiron screen or whatever, you know, his test pattern. Right. They would go to that. But there was nothing else on. So if you wanted to watch TV, 
After that, there was nothing on except Jim Baker put his show on there. And that was the only thing to watch at 1 o'clock in the morning. And Don West selling baseball cards. Yeah, see? And that's how they got over because nothing else was on. That's why everybody knew Jim Baker. Whether you was religious or not didn't matter. Maybe you wanted to watch something. Maybe you were alone. Maybe you needed something going on in the background. But you'd put it on. Same way with the wrestling. Sometimes, you know, you'd watch it because, not because of what they were doing. It's because it was, you know, it was between that and gun smoke, I guess. I don't know. But a lot of people, if you, a lot of people, I don't think, realize that. But, you know, Jim Baker, and he, he got big, and he got big, he got big fast. So, uh, the wrestling, I, I've been in it since, I don't know, all my life. I never really had a job. Well, I had a job one time, but I didn't much like it <laughs> because, you know, they expected me to actually show up <laughs> and then like fucking do some work. Do stuff, yeah. You know? <laughs> and I fuck that. I said, yeah, and I told a guy, I said, hey, this damn 730 to 2.30 shit don't work for me. Why don't we go, woman? <laughs> I'm kidding now, but I told him, I said, why don't we rearrange my time? Say like 10.45 to like... <laughs> 1230. How about that? that that'll be my day. And I said, when I come in, I want you to play some music when they open the doors and put a spotlight on me and everybody stand up and cheer and throw little paper things like they do in Japan. Then I guess I can get through the day. So, But they didn't like that, so they let me go. How'd, how'd you break in the business? First of all, I want to thank How'd you. For, I break in? Yeah, first of all, I want to thank Go you ahead. for your service. I know you uh, you were drafted and you did a tour too. Yes, it was. Uh, so yep, thank I you did. for that. that. Was. U- U.S. Army. Yes. Uh, oh, I, I got to bring this up too. My football team won the national championship. Clemson. <coughs> yes, they did. I'm a huge, huge Clemson fan. I've always been a Clemson fan because it's right there where I grew up. So. And the way they beat Alabama stunned everybody. Damn, damn sure stunned Alabama. For sure. They didn't know what they, they never they never been beat that bad in their life. They'd have put in the third string quarterback if he ever if they had one. They didn't know what, <laughs> they didn't know what they were doing. And I'm not a big Nick Saban fan, but Dabo is a Dabo's a, a, a to me a, what coaching is all about. Well, not getting off wrestling, not getting off the subject of the podcast, but Dabo is a great recruiter. Yes, sir. And he recruits with one thing in mind, and that's culture. Because it's one thing to be a good football player and be a fuck-up. So you've had a lot of those. That's what he weeds out. No matter how good you are, if you're a screw-up, you're going to screw up sometime. So it might as well, if you, can, if you can just eliminate that screwing up from the guy, then you got him for four years. So if a guy's a screw-up, he may screw up in his, first, his freshman year and he's done. Sure. But you've wasted... You know, uh, a scholarship on the kid. Not wasted, but you wasted that year on him. I mean, you, you probably get it back. I don't know how that works. But he is a big recruiter on culture, and he wants his guys. And I, I saw, a, I saw a, a statistic the other day about, I think Clemson graduates 92% of the football scholarships they award. That's a pretty high amount. And you don't hear of Clemson, you know, screwing up the NCAA guidelines or saving either for that matter. But he's a great recruiter and uh, they have a great program there. Now it's it's not Alabama by itself anymore. Now it's Alabama and Clemson. I think Clemson moved ahead of them this year. I think you are correct for sure. 
Get, getting back to wrestling. Uh, so I was asking you how you got in the business. You're back from the war, and you started the one job, which uh, they wouldn't change your hours, so you t- uh, yeah, took off. I did. And, yeah, and I, did, I didn't like it. Back then, it wasn't, well, I, it wasn't as easy I as it is Go ahead. I had a friend. I had a friend, and I had wrestled a little bit of – and I was just out of high school, really. And I had started this little independent wrestling thing. See, I never really took any formal training. If you see me in the ring, that's that's very easy to see. <laughs> but but I went into army, and the guy that I had kind of broken into the independent business with, and he was big. He's like six seven, about four hundred some pounds. So he got a job, and this is when they had the old territorial days, right? Like they had a territory in Florida, then they would have one in Georgia, and then Alabama had two, sometimes three. And then Charlotte, and, you know, the Carolinas and Virginia was another one. And then Tennessee would have one or two, and Texas would have two. And, but those were all territories that you could go to. But he he was from Georgia, so he liked the Georgia wrestling. So he contacted uh, the, the booker over there at the time, and nobody would know who I'm talking about. But his name was Tom Ernesto, and he was the assassin. And if you ever saw this team work, they were really – Jody Hamilton and Tom Ernesto were the assassins. We had Jody, very smooth team. We had Jody Great on the podcast. Too. We had Jody on the podcast. He's uh, yeah. If it wasn't for Jody Hamilton, I, I would probably wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. So he's very influential in my uh, – Good guy. Great. Really, really good guy. And great, great in the ring. So, One of the probably the best masked men I've, I've ever seen. And to weigh 300 pounds, very light on his feet, great athlete. Sure. But anyway, he had, this is my friend of mine was named, uh, was named Doug, and he got a job uh, in Atlanta, and he'd only been there about six or eight months, I think, when I got out of the Army. So he was talking to me one day. He said, hey, why don't you, I told, uh, I told the booker, Tom, about you, and he wants to meet you. I said, really? He said, yeah. So I went over there with him one weekend to Atlanta, and we went to the office. We went to the office uh, on like Monday morning, and I met him, and I just talked to him, and he says, "You want to start?" And I get because Doug, he he already paved the way for me. Right. I said, "Yeah." He said, "Okay, I'm gonna start you in like at this date." He gave me like a week later. Okay. But first, he 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 sent me on a a little audition trip. And it was from somewhere in Anderson, South Carolina, where I was living, all the way to Valdosta, Georgia, which is about 300 miles on back road in August, the middle of August, without air conditioning. And I drove I drove a car without air conditioning that whole way and got down there and had this match, and I must have uh, did, did okay, so they hired me. So I, so I went to work back in those days. And... Of course, I didn't know shit from Shinola. I didn't know nothing about the wrestling business. I knew a headlock and an arm drag, and I knew nothing about timing, and I knew nothing about promos, and I know nothing about sequence, and I knew nothing about pacing. I knew nothing. I was having to learn it on the job. Sure. And that's when, I, <clears throat> excuse me, and that's that's when I learned wrestling is when I would go to these shows with these old timers. I would watch them, and they would watch me. So when we get in the car at night, they I would be behind the wheel because they they would they want to drink beer, and they would start talking to me. And after about two beers in on a really really hot July or August day in Georgia, they would start talking to me. And I said, uh, 
did you see my match? And they went, don't flatter yourself, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call it that. But they were kidding me, and then they would help me. Don't do this, and don't do that, and slow down, slow down. And that's how I learned. And see, my, my actually, my formal education about wrestling actually took place uh, on, on, on 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. That's when class started for me. So I had them all the way from till the trip ended, and they would they would mentor me and talk to me, and because then that's where I learned all the stories too. And if they like you, they'll tell you these stories. If they like you, they'll help you. If they didn't like me, I wouldn't even been in the car. Sure. So I I consider that an uh, an honor to ride with those guys, and uh, I, I learned a lot. I learned so much about about this business, and I learned about life too. They would tell you all these stories and don't do this and don't do that. And, but they were kind of like my my mentors, and I appreciate each and every one of them that ever helped me. So that's how I got into the business. Yeah, I mean, some of the best times of um, of my time in pro wrestling were, like you said, the rides after the shows and people just telling stories and laughing, and, and, and it's sort of a kind of a lost start. Uh, well, well, it is. I actually, when I was in WWE the last, the last time I was there, I actually volunteered because the writers, nothing against them, but I, I don't, I don't know. I, see, I think WWE they just want writers, which is fine. But how can you write about a fight sequence when you've never been in a fight yourself? Right. You know what I mean. So I actually volunteered one time to ride with the writers from from Raw to SmackDown. And then to the next town or wherever we got to go to get some flight or whatever. But they turned it down. They said they didn't want to, they didn't want the riders associated with the wrestlers. <laughs> I said okay, I offered. But that's how you learn. If you if you don't know that, like I was saying earlier, if you don't know the history of the business, you don't know where you've come from. So that's brutal. And sometimes some of the, some some of these gimmicks are so old they're new. Sure. Because this new bunch. Not only of wrestlers, but fans. They've never, they've never seen it before. Like when I was in TNA, right? TNA, the Impact. You know the hot mess. Sure. The Aravon mess. Sure. Well, I, I'd never really seen that gimmick before, but, but it got over so well, and the people, and you can tell when, when people like something, because when you play her music and she came out, people would stand up because it, it was something new. And it was fresh, and it was fun. So, and she actually—I read on Twitter today. She actually gave me credit for it. it wasn't me; it was her. I just, I just, I just decided to keep the gimmick, mm-hmm. and we were going to develop it together. And she did such a great job with it. And the reason it got over was because most girls would run from that gimmick. Right. They would, they would run so far and so fast away. I don't have nothing to do with it. No, 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 no. But she embraced it, and that makeup was all smeared. <laughs> And and she did a great job with it, but that's that's basically how I got into the business to start off with, and I just stayed in it. Like I said, I never looked for another job because I didn't like to have a job. Who came working didn't agree with me. Yeah, me too. Now I got to work. Hey, who came up with the name Dutch Mantel, and how did it happen? Is that you or somebody else? Oh, well, it wasn't me. I didn't know. Dutch, you know, Dutch Mantel was a real guy. No, really. You didn't know that? No. Where you, where your where is your historian? Now I'm talking tell, to him. I'm gonna tell you the quick story. I'm working with Buddy Fuller and, and Ron 
uh, up around Knoxville, and they were going to bring me in, and I was going under my own name then. They said, well, we're going to give you another name. And I said, okay, give me another name. I don't care. We're going to call you Dutch Mantel. <clears throat> and I never heard a name for in my life. So, and Dutch Mantel was, a, you know, he was from the Netherlands, and he had immigrated from, you know, Holland or the Netherlands to the United States. And he was like a shooter. And and he settled in Amarillo, Texas. And uh, and the story about him is he got in Amarillo and was over so well. Now, this was years and years and years ago. Uh, when he died, I heard like half the town like didn't shut down, but a lot of people paid a visit to his, you know, the funeral home and, you know, paid visits to the to the church during the funeral and a, a highly, highly respected guy. Wow. But, uh, and, and he was very, very active in civic affairs. Like he, uh, he was very active in the, you know, you know what the boys ranch is in Florida? Yeah, 100%. And they have a girls ranch too, right? They had one in Texas. And he was one of the big, big sponsors of that. And that's why people respected him so much. But anyway, they gave me that name and Dutch Mantel. And finally, I just, I said, well, I need something else with it like a year or two later. And I put the dirty on it, Dirty Dutch, and took it from there. And actually, where I first started, I put the dirty on it, but it wasn't really dirty. It was uh, it was another word. It was called Sucio. That's when I went to Puerto Rico, and I was Sucio Dutch, Dirty Dutch. So that's how that's how the uh, evolution of Dutch Mantel came about. So you were on the first show I ever attended live. Uh, at the Fort Lauderdale National Guard Armory in 1977, you wrestled Steve Kern. Main event was Ox mm-hmm. Baker versus Ernie Ladd. Do you, you remember? You remember me, right? From there. <clears throat> well, I think we, I think we had a moment. 77. <laughs> no, no, but uh, but you're on the first show, so that's a little. You, you've told me you've told me this before, and I vaguely remember it, <laughs> but I vaguely, but I vaguely don't. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to lie to you, but. That was with the unair conditioned army, right? Oh, brutal, yes. And brutal, hell yeah. And we would, you know, we would take a shower. They had showers, but you'd have to walk across the floor. <laughs> and, and all the people could see you going to the shower. Yeah, I know. So what I finally did, they, they hooked us up uh, like a, a water a water hose right next to the, where the dressing room was. And it was, you know, it's hot in Florida anyway. So I would actually go out there and take take a shower outside, like on the pavement. And the people could see that, too. So I don't know what the people thought of the rest of the day. We were then half walking, half naked across the floor, taking a shower, just hosing ourselves down out in the back. I don't know what they thought. But uh, not, that was the first card you went to? That was the first show I ever went to, yes. Ox Baker, Ernie Ladd. I think it was Mike Graham and Kevin Sullivan against Crusher Verdue and uh, uh somebody else and uh then you, you were on uh you and steve i believe you went over steve that night uh i don't i don't, I don't believe that no i, I no I actually i actually remember because as a young kid watching wrestling on tv championship wrestling from florida steve got a pretty much of a push so i was really and you didn't get as big of a push so at, i was 11 years old but i was surprised that you had went over uh you know this 11 year old yeah uh so that, that's I why gotta, I, I got a push I got a push, all right, <laughs> right over the state line. <laughs> they pushed me right up into there. No, I, I actually, I, my first, my first tour of Florida, Florida, I enjoyed it. It was very good. So, 
But, uh, <laughs> hey, can you hear that beeping? No, not really. Okay, I got it on my phone. <clears throat> I want to get back to Florida. A- I want to get back to Florida a little bit later because uh, uh, you tell a great story when you're booking down there that I definitely want to get on. Uh, the early days of the territory days of the 70s, uh, what was your favorite territory that you ever worked? Well, I, I really enjoyed Florida. I, I enjoyed that. <clears throat> and I enjoyed uh, uh, they had two in Tennessee here, one in Nashville and one in Memphis. I've right. worked both of them. I think I enjoyed the Memphis run in the early 80s. Trips weren't too bad. Business was pretty good. Money was pretty good. So, and I was here doing the, the Andy Kaufman run, which was, you know, historical. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a very historical run. People still talk about it. So, the one that never drew any Andy money. Kaufman, right? Andy, 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 yeah, the one, the one that what, never drew any money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, the story I told you, it wasn't, it wasn't on air. Yeah, I have. Uh, and I'll tell, I'll tell the, the listeners right now. I was telling Dave before we went, I started talking here that I had a podcast one time and I had this guy working with me, and I'm not going to say his name. But I was talking about the the Andy Kaufman run with uh, Lawler. And on their big kind of blow off deal, it was sold out. <laughs> and, and he says, No, it wasn't sold out. I said, Yeah, it sold out. No, it wasn't. I said, Yes, it was. <clears throat> And he said, no, I've read the box office reports. <laughs> I said, well, let me tell you something, brother. I, I was standing there, and there's no more seats to be had. There's 12,000 people in, in that building. And it was because of the great angle that Lawler and Kaufman put together. And that was one of the greatest angles I ever saw. Very entertaining. And uh, Andy was, he was, people just literally hated that guy. Till the night that, you know, when the big famous match where he got hurt and got carted out on the right. journey and all that. Right. I looked in that ring that night and I made it a point. Every time Andy was on the show, I made it a point to not know what they were going to do. I would, if somebody wanted to tell me and say, what's I said, don't tell me, don't tell me. I don't, I didn't want to know. I wanted to look at it as a fan. So. Because Andy, the people just hated him, especially around Memphis. Even the guys, some of the guys hated him after they heard his interview. <laughs> he would talk about Memphis and all. He would he'd use that Southern voice. And some of the guys would actually got mad at him. Oh my God. <laughs> but I looked in that ring one night, and that, that night, and Lotto was coming to the ring, and I saw, I guess Andy was 5'9", maybe, maybe 160 pounds, 170 pounds, maybe. With Long John's on and little, I guess, Kmart pair of black shorts and some running shoes, I guess is what he had on. And he was very white, very pasty faced. His hair looked really dirty and greasy. He was the most unlikeliest candidate of all time to headline or main event any show anywhere in the world, even an independent show. Sure. The only, only one thing qualified him to be there. He sold 12,360 tickets or whatever it was. So when you have somebody selling the tickets, that qualifies them to hold that spot down. <clears throat> and people still talk about the match. They still talk about the run. And, you know, what was the movie they made about that? What was it? Man in the Moon? I wish they never made it, to tell you the truth. What? I wish they never told everybody they, they, they schemed this up. Because I've talked to people, <clears throat> even today, and they said, no, 
that Lawler really hated him. <laughs> and he really hurt him. So, but then that, that was how believable it was. See, that was the difference between wrestling years ago and wrestling today, even though they got, they got all the bells and whistles in it now. But I think they actually do too much. But back in those days, one thing about Jerry Lawler, I think he's a great worker. But one thing about him, he had great timing. And nothing was lost. Almost like Jake the Snake. Jake the Snake, no moves were wasted. Everything had a purpose and it had a time. And they they knew when to put it in there. For maximum benefit. You know, you hear the big pop from the crowd. They knew what they were working for. Sure. And when it came, it came. So, and that's what a lot of guys today don't understand, I think, the timing, because I don't think, you know, the way, I think they're trained just to do, just to do all kind of acrobatic spots, which, which is good, but you don't get to, you don't, to me, how you draw money is you have to touch the hearts of the fans. You got to make them feel something. It's almost like a football team. If you don't feel an allegiance to a football team or a college team, they're not going to draw, period. But if you can touch that heart, you can get them to say, "Oh boy, this, he's going to—he's he, going to get his come up us now." And it goes both ways. The bad guy or the heel—he needs to—you don't got to hate him, but he's got, he's got to be—you know—you. It's like meeting people on the street. Like if you meet a cocky guy, you don't really hate him. You just want to see somebody put him in his place. <laughs> and it's almost like the good guy—you like him, but this other guy has jacked him around so much. Now you want to see. Uh, justice carried out. But somehow, I think that formula, <laughs> I don't know where that formula went, but sometimes it, it's just totally lacking sometimes in some of the things I watch. But anyway, that's that's my formula. And it's always worked for me, so whether it works for somebody else, I don't know. Were there were there people in the dressing room in Memphis who thought that uh, the Andy Coffin thing was exposing the business? No. No, not at all. Because back in those days, years ago, you, it was almost an, well, it wasn't an unwritten rule. It was almost an oral rule that you had to kayfabe everywhere. Sure. If you, if, uh, maybe if, if you go back just a little before that time, maybe 10 years earlier, the good guys or the baby faces couldn't ride with the heels because if you did, they'd fire you if they found out about it. That's how, and it was that way in Puerto Rico for years and years and years. If you found out, if they found out, the office found out that you was, you know, if you were piling around with one of your opponents, they'd fire you. Because once it got out that it's all a bunch of a bunch of crap, it's all set up, it's all staged, it's arranged, and it's almost like the magician exposing the trick. Sure. Now you talk about that stuff today, you look at it like shut the fuck up. Nobody <laughs> believe that shit. But. And I have told some of these stories to some of those younger guys in WWE, and they would look at me like, yeah, you're fucking mine. So, <laughs> That's a shame. But, That's a shame. So I would just say, and I tell you, I, I, I did it a couple of times, and finally I got to thinking, well, hell, maybe I am out of my fucking mind. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they know what they're talking about, and I don't. I don't know. So, but, the, but the business has evolved so much. Sometimes the only thing that kind of draws the comparison between it is the ring in the middle of the floor. Yeah, really. You know they got they got lights and their music and you know they, finally they got rid of the goddamn fireworks, got rid of that shit. And but sometimes, but sometimes guys go to the ring and the people just sit there and they just look at him. 
see, when I broke in, we didn't have music. I mean, we had music, but we damn sure didn't have it in the matches. Sure. Wahoo McDaniel told me one time, he said, my music was going to the ring with the, the fans cheering me on. That was my music. Because when they'd ring the bell, that was almost, then you hear the big pops. Now you, they got away, they don't ring a bell. They just go play the music and then they come up. For some of them. Sometimes they play music and they still sit there. I don't know. <laughs> and you know, you know, some of the things you don't see in wrestling anymore, and these are just simple things. I don't know the last time I saw an arm drag. Have you seen one lately? I'm thinking. I don't think so. See, you didn't see an arm drag. You know what else you don't see? Headlock? Drop kick. Drop, drop kick. Super kick. That's a new drop kick. Yeah, well, yeah, well you see a super kick. You don't see a drop kick. Uh, I'll tell you what, a beal out of the corner. Yeah, you never see a beal. That's, uh, definitely. And I'm going to tell you what, and, and when I did see it, uh, well, I did see it. It's almost like seeing goddamn Bigfoot. <laughs> Nobody will believe you. <laughs> but see, they, they, they give it wrong. They take the hand and put it right in the armpit and try to throw the guy. I did that one time and I was breaking in. Next thing I, know, I knew, I got, I got the shit slapped out of me. And the guy says, kid, don't ever do that again. Do it this way. And he put my arm in position. Then he took it. But I guarantee you, I didn't put that arm in the armpit anymore. He taught me that real quick. But there was just some things that are still uh, are just missing. You know, another thing that's missing, I used to kind of look forward to, and, and you can't do it today for time constraints. But you know when the two guys meet in the middle of the ring like in a boxing match? They used to do that for wrestling. Yeah, they don't give, do that anymore. Give instructions. You know what else you... No, you don't... You, I guess you just assume they read the instructions <laughs> in, the, in the pamphlet they just left laying around the dressing room. It's in their contract. You know, yeah, yeah. Here's the here's instructions for tonight. And another thing, they never announced time limits. That's been gone for a long time. When's the last time you saw a time limit draw? Yeah, they don't. They don't. I uh, I did an indie show down here in Tampa last weekend, and uh, and I said, you know, what do you want me to do for time limits? And they looked at me like. What are you talking about? Like, like they never heard of time limits, and I'm like, so he they, so, like you had so two he goes, heads. so the guy goes, well, time here, limits. What's the, that? The guy goes, well, the time of the match is on the paper, so it'd say like eight to ten minutes, or on the, and so I just said, all right, I got. That's it for, what you should announce. You should announce this match scheduled for eight to ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so no, so if and it's then, if it's said, said, well, that's what it fucking said. If it said eight to ten, I said fifteen minute time limit. If it said ten to twenty, I said thirty minute time limit. I, I, I said I got it from here. I'm cool, uh, but but yeah, there's no concept of that. It's just uh, one fall. That's unbelievable. Uh, well, you you never see it anymore. And I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know why. I'm just sitting around here just thinking ob- obscure stuff, I guess. But uh, you never see that anymore. And but you used to see it, and some guys used to be sticklers for time, sticklers for tradition and protocol. You know, they, they had to be done this way, and uh, you know who was like that? Bill Watts. Oh, yeah. Bill Watts was like that. And uh, But the old-timers, you know, Eddie Graham was like that. Did you ever meet Eddie? I never know. I never met Eddie Graham. Good guy. Very good guy. Well, and he was the one who actually made, made for it what it was. Absolutely. Let's jump to that because I wanted to talk about uh, 
you booking Florida in 1985. It was sort of uh, towards the end of, of of championship wrestling from Florida. Tell me about the challenges uh, that you had, especially considering the fact that uh, you know halfway, I believe, through uh, the booking of of your booking period, uh, Eddie Graham unfortunately killed himself, which I'm sure yep. couldn't have been an easy thing to have to you know include in. Well, I mentioned that I wrote two books. One was called uh, The World Recording Dutch, and the second was Tales from a Dirt Road. And and these these are stories. These are stories that it's not a regular book. It doesn't go in linear fashion. It doesn't start like, well, I started in such and such a day, and then I moved here, and then I did this and this, then I moved here. It doesn't go in a line. It doesn't go in linear, you know, style. I'm all over the place, but it's. But one of the chapters in there is about me booking Florida and the Eddie Graham, you know, death. But I went down there and uh, in 1984 because Dory, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Dory Fox was the booker, but he was leaving. Right. And the reason he was leaving is because Dusty left. Right. Dusty went to Mid-Atlantic. And what hurt the territory so badly was that when Dusty left, he took all the stars with him. He took Magnum and he took uh, Barry Windham, Barry Win- Barry Windham, and he and he took several more of the uh, top stars. They all went with him to Mid Atlantic to Charlotte. So when I got down there, it was just a bunch of you know underneath guys trying to main event, but they had, they hadn't been positioned as main event guys, so they had to be uh, repackaged and made the seem like they were main event guys. And it took about, oh, at least three months. At least. Because some of those towns just weren't drawing at all. And they had gotten kicked out of that, what's that, Homer Lee Hesterly Armory? Right, right. Which was... Uh... They, had got, they, they had gotten kicked out of there and they went to the University of Tampa or something. I don't know where they went. But it was very, very difficult to, to book it. But, you know, I just... Little by little and week by week, it got a little better and it got a little better and it got a little better. But along that run, you know, and I learned a lot. I I wanted to learn a lot more from Eddie, but Eddie was at that time kind of always found him to be really nervous and almost, what's that word I'm looking at, fidgety, I guess. Because you couldn't sit him down long enough because he he was always looking around and he was just nervous. And I wonder, what the hell is going on with Eddie? And then I remember Super Bowl Sunday, 1985, we did Orlando in the afternoon because uh, I think the Super Bowl was coming on about 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock. And about right before that show was over, over we, got a, we got news. Somebody found out or, that Eddie Graham had shot himself the night before on Saturday night. He had shot himself. You know? Now it kind of dawns on me that, well, whatever it was bothering Eddie was really, really serious. And see, a lot of people don't know this, but Eddie didn't, he didn't really kill himself with the shot in the head. He shot himself in the mouth. And he didn't shoot himself once, he shot himself twice. Really? Did you know that? No, I did not. The first one didn't kill him. The second one didn't kill him. Because I know Eddie. Eddie, he, when he missed for the first time, he, I guarantee you made him mad. Mad in hell. Because he was a very competitive guy. I mean, 
as competitive as you can be, I guess, when you want to commit suicide. Sure. But but they had to, they put him on life support, and then they had to, and he still he he was alive. His his brain was wasn't making it, but he was still breathing. So they had to they put him on life support, and they had to pull the plug on him. I did not know so, though, but that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, the day before that, though, you tell uh, you told me a story a couple times that I was hoping I could get you to tell on the podcast about how you. Uh, you sold out the day before the Super Bowl. You sold out Robards oh, yeah. Arena. So yeah, was, yeah. Well, I, I booked myself. Ric Flair. You know, years ago when in the NWA, the NWA office out of St. Louis, Mushnick's office. If you remember, they would tell you when you would have the champion. Right. You would get him like three times a year, and we had him, and you'd know this months in advance. So they would they wouldn't book, I mean the champion wouldn't book himself they would book him and they would tell you hey you can have him from here to here you got to bring him in you got to send him out to this next place okay so we had him doing that and I forgot I think this was in January I'm pretty sure or toward the end of January but we had him for a week and I booked myself in Sarasota against uh, Flair. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I really pushed that show. I, you know, I put it on the Miami channel and I put it on the, the Jacksonville channel and I put it on the Tallahassee channel and in Orlando. I mean, just, uh, just, just a promo just for that show right there. I didn't know you're not supposed to do that. They came back later and said, well, don't do that again. I said, why? They said, well, that's a commercial and they're going to charge us for the commercial if we do it again. Oh, wow. But I had it on, I had it, I didn't, you know that. I said, well, hell, it's on our show. What difference does it make? Don't we have, is it that our time? Well, they, they don't look at it that way. <clears throat> so anyway, but we sold out, me and Flair. Not that they thought I could beat him. I, 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 I think I just promoted it well. And we had a pretty good card. So, and I remember, and, I, and now I remember the story you, you, you want me to tell you, but but that week, Eddie, Eddie died, and I went into the office on like a Wednesday, and I think his funeral was being held that day, but you, we used to do TV in Florida on Wednesday afternoon. Don't ask me why. That's what they did. So, <laughs> and you can imagine in the wintertime, you wouldn't have any people in there. Who's going to go to a wrestling TV taping on Wednesday afternoon at 1 o'clock? Not many. But for the funeral, Dusty had come in. So I went into the office that morning, and I'm sitting there, and Dusty's in my office. That used to be his office, but he was behind the desk, <laughs> and I was sitting in front of the desk. And Dusty had heard about the show in Sarasota, and he looked at me, and he said, Dustin Tio. <laughs> he said, uh, $21,000 or whatever it was, $21,168. That's a hell of a house, baby, Sarasota, without the dream. Or, or with the dream, he said. He said, but it's not the record. The record is $22,295 motherfucking dollars. Dusty Rhodes versus uh, uh, Ric Flair was championship. But he, he told me that, yeah, it was a good house, but don't get too excited because he had the money record. <laughs> and you remember John You remember John Heath? Yeah, he was a promoter. Well, John, John, he promoted Sarasota. So about the next week, uh, when I saw him, I said, John, can I ask you, coach, coach, can I talk to you? Yeah. I said, and I told him the story, and he laughed. Uh, he said, does he said he do $22,000 in that? And he says, well, 
he said he's got the record. He said, well, he has the record money-wise. He's right there, but not people-wise because he raised his ticket prices. <laughs> he said he didn't really sell it out. You sold it out, but he had more money because he charged more for tickets. And tell you the truth, I didn't even know what hell I had the power to do that. <laughs> I was just I was just booking the goddamn territory. I wouldn't charge ticket prices. That's my favorite spot. That's and my I, favorite. I thought I thought somebody with with with, uh, with bigger stripes than I I would would uh, they would be in charge of that, but they didn't. That's my. Dusty wanted to tell me you did a good job, but <laughs> you didn't set the record. And I've told Cody, I've told Cody this, I've told Dustin this. They just laugh. They think that's funny as hell. <laughs> I think but, it's a great story. Uh, let's talk about. Um, uh, Puerto Rico a little bit uh, did, did a lot of uh, did a lot of time spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico I don't want to go back and rehash the story of Bruiser Brody you've told it a bunch of times I, I, I was able to see it I just put your name in and it popped up on YouTube so I don't want to uh, if, if people haven't seen what you said uh, or heard about it uh, you could just well let, let me say, let me say this about uh, the Bruiser Brody thing the Vice Network they are coming out with a series next year, or this year, I think it's going to be out in a couple of months, called The Dark Tales of the Ring. Really? And that's, yeah. And the lead-off, I think the lead-off uh, series in that, and it's about six or eight shows. And the lead-off series is the Bruiser Brody murder in Puerto Rico. Wow. And, I, and I'm on there, and I'm on there, and Tony Atlas is on there, and, you know, different people are on there that were surrounded. But it's a very interesting series. And then later on, I end up doing the narration for it. Wow. And we do the, the screw job in Montreal, and they do that. And they do the uh, the, the, Von, the Von Erich story. They do that. They do the Moolah story. But it's the untold stories or dark tales of the ring that I think would do well. And it's it's in reenactment. You, you've seen a reenactment like... You know, the murder shows, they have the reenactments. They yeah. don't really show the real people. <clears throat> and then they interview the real people, but you don't really see them on the screen. It's a, it's a reenactment, and it's, it's going to come out on Vice Network, I think, maybe March, April of this year. Wow, that sounds so like must-see TV. So, so look sure. for it. Um, after, after what happened with Bruiser Brody, uh, most of the Americans left. Uh, sort of in protest, you ended up going back. I'm just wondering, did you have any hesitation about that, and uh, or just business is business? Well, if you want to stay in the wrestling business, it was one of the few places that were still open. That's true. It, it happened in '88, July the 18th, I think, 1988 is when it happened, and uh, I left, didn't go back to another six years. And they, most of the guys wouldn't wouldn't go back down there, and their business died. <clears throat> Until I went back down there, and I took over the book again, and we started drawing again. But and then I was working for that same company back in the late nineties, and then I got in a big beef over money with them and quit. But by the by, but they had this other group running there by Victor Quinones. You remember Victor, right? Yeah. You know him? What he had, the IWA and Samuel Vega and Miguel. They had this opposition group going, challenging Carlos. So I went and told Carlos I needed more money and told me I couldn't get more money. I said, okay. So I, I literally, I walked from my hotel two blocks down the street. And I, I stayed in East Liberty, which is close to the airport. I just walked down the street to 
Victor Kenyana's apartment. He wanted to talk to me anyway. Walked in there. In five minutes, I had my deal. Walked out the door, quit. Went home for Christmas and come back and started with another company. And it took me three months. And I was doing ratings down there. Uh, now, this was a different era. I know that. But sometimes I have done an 18-3 down a rating. That's unbelievable, is it? Yeah, no, the ratings uh, that you were able to do in Puerto Rico, I've uh, un- unbelievable. about People, it. You say that now. It, I need to have something that says that. People said, you're a goddamn liar. You didn't know 18 fucking ratings. Tim Superboat don't do that. <clears throat> but they have three sports in Puerto Rico. One is one is chicken fighting, cock fighting. That's a sport. Baseball and pro wrestling. And, and one more, politics. <laughs> That's the four things they pay attention to in Puerto Rico. And the show was so good, uh, people started watching it. So when I walked down the street, you know, this company, uh, Victor Quinone's company, they were doing like a 2.3, a 2.5. It was nothing. When I walked in there, I said, God damn, guys, a Viagra commercial will do a 2.7. <laughs> kind of made them mad. But so I got my deal. I got my money. And then I started back and it took me about three months. And then all of a sudden, it just started taking off. When you- and, it, and it's just and it's just it's just simple booking. It's just my my one thing about booking was I always listen to the fans. Everyone buying the tickets, they're the ones watching the TV, not me, not the wrestlers. I told the wrestlers, quit working for the dressing room, work for the people. Don't do that. Maybe my granddaughter just came in, so you might you, you might hear some noise. But anyway, it was it was very it was fun. It was just simple stuff. An old time booker told me one time. He said, well, if you ever book, always book one thing just for you just that you enjoy because if you enjoy it people enjoy it too so I would walk into and we would do TV on Saturday night and I would walk in you know Puerto Rico they don't they might as well not even have clocks down there or watches because they don't pay attention to <laughs> no, time anyway not at all so, start at 8.30 BME they don't start at 8.30 it starts at like 9.20 or 24 to 10 or whatever <laughs> It's when they just get ready to start it. That's why the matches, they go to 1 o'clock in the morning sometimes. I told the promoter one time, we was there at one thirty in the morning, and I and I told the guy, I said, God damn, his name is Joe Bica. I said, you know, Joe Bica, if you keep them a couple more hours, hell, you could serve them breakfast. <laughs> just think of, think of that fucking stream of revenue. And I think he actually thought about it, Dave. <laughs> but, but I would walk Did he sell in the, the building, flowers? Oh, yeah. I would walk in the building on Saturday night, and I would feel the vibe of the people that are coming in. You know, and if they were up, 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 I said, okay, going to be a lively crowd, okay. And I would I would order a cup, a cup of beers, and you know, I'd drink them. And then I would go in about 8 o'clock, then i start lining up the car. And then I and I would change it just through the show, just just have an idea. I just change this, change that, and it was almost like a pickup baseball game. Hell, who's here? <laughs> I've done that too. Who's here? <laughs> and throw it out there, and the people, you know, that's I would I would do I would I would do angles and stuff, and people. But when the bell would ring, I educated them to not to leave because now I'm going to give them the trailer for next week. And I would always have this big, wild, convoluted brawl or whatever I did. But when that last bell rang, when my matches were over, people wouldn't get up. They wouldn't grab their whatever they had to get out that door. They'd sit there. And I could, you could see them almost edging each other and, you know, giving their elbows and say, watch it, watch it, watch it. Here it's come. You know, it's what they want to see. And they would stay. Really, a, really a fun time because, and I would listen to the people. And I don't give a shit. 
If I put a guy out there and I beat him every night, didn't matter. If the people responded, uh, if they responded to him, he had what I call chemistry. And if he's got chemistry with the fans, the ones you're trying to reach, then there's a little money in the guy. Sure. So that's what I would do. Any any worry when you switched over to uh, uh, IWA after you after what you saw in uh, in in the dressing room with Brody? Any worry? Did you have to watch your back a little bit? Yeah, no. <laughs> and then, hey, that's I keep hearing that. Oh, more they they could have killed you. They ain't gonna do shit. I mean, that was a, that was whatever happened between Brody and Vader. You know, I wasn't involved in it. I was just there, and I'm sorry it happened, but I didn't have nothing to do with me. And what, what, and why would they want to get me anyway? I didn't see nothing. Yeah, they was in they was in the shower, and I and when it happened, I was asking the dugout. I, 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 and I, I write about that in my book too. I've always felt a feeling of danger in the air in Puerto Rico. Right. Because it is a pretty goddamn dangerous place. When I got down, the first year I was ever down there, they had they put out this paper called El Rosero, The Voice. Of course, it's in Spanish. So every morning I would pick it up, and it was in the, it was it was like National Enquirer size. But on the front page every day was a picture of a murder victim. He's all shot up or cut up or horrible. I mean, they kept that out in tour sections. <laughs> I would, but I would read it. So, and then they would have like, I mean, we in the year fifty-two. Yes, sir. They'd have at least twenty murders a week. Wow. They'd have a thousand a year. And they used to tell me, "Oh, don't worry, it's all drug related." I said, oh, well, "Wait a minute! What if the drug dealers come out on the street and start shooting? Bullets don't know. I'm not doing it. <laughs> oh, you'll be okay. Just stay in it." And you had to stay in the uh, the tourist section because if you didn't, you know you ran a you ran a risk of getting hurt. So, hey, I've, I've been to some crazy ass places in this wrestling business. It's all in all in my book. I went to them like Bahamas. That was a wild place. Another place was Trinidad, down right off the coast of South America. That was a crazy ass place. You used to go down there. So. And I've wrestled all kind of crazy. I wrestled with a barge one time in Miami Bay. Oh yeah, Miami Marine Stadium. You remember that? I never, no, I never went to wrestling there. On a barge. Yeah, and somebody always went in the water. Oh yeah, me and Steve Carter. He threw me in the water. I think <laughs> somebody threw me in the water. I don't know who it was. Then I wrestled on the racetrack. I actually wrestled on the racetrack when the ring was put on the back of an eighteen wheeler. And it circled the track at about five miles an hour. Wow! Really? And then we go all the way around the track, and then we come around, and it was just uncanny how that finish would come about right when you got back to the start. <laughs> <laughs> it was time to go, and I had to wrestle crazy places, just nutty places. I wrestled at a, you know, that monster truck show. Yeah. Things they used to have. Sure. Wrestled there one time. And we were supposed to wrestle between the races. So I remember it was in Memphis. And I was going to wrestle Robert Fuller. So I asked the guy, I said, how long do you want this to go? He said, this go to be tell you to stop. Said, okay. 
<laughs> but anyway, I knew it couldn't be too long. And ladies and gentlemen, from Hornswell, Texas, Danny Dashmantel. Oh, okay. And then they announced Robert. Ding, ding. I swear to God. We circled twice. Ding, ding. Rang the bell. Didn't even lock up. Because the next race was ready to go. <laughs> and I looked at the people, and they looked at me, and I said, well, time for the race. Let's go. Got out of the ring. <laughs> Did you have a finish? Wait, like a schoolboy or something? No, we didn't have nothing. Just left. That's <laughs> it. Well, it wasn't us. They was putting it on. They didn't want paying for it. Sure. You know what else I did one time? What's that? Wrestled in front of a full percussion orchestra. Really? Playing yeah, that's while, on YouTube. Playing while you were wrestling? The 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 orchestra was in the background. I wrestled Jeff Jarrett at the Louisville Symphony place or whatever they call it. So we got can you imagine they go out there and it was a his it was it's a percussion performance. And percussion is, they were telling me later, is anything you bang on. Like, like a drum is percussion. Right. You know, piano is concussion because you're banging the, the strings. And, uh, but that's that's what percussion is. So we had this match. And you imagine these people come all dressed up. Some of them had tuxedos on. This is, you know, it's just opera. And here come the goddamn wrestling ring up through the floor. <laughs> Two wrestlers in it percussion orchestra there and they start and we start wrestling around and people didn't know what to think and we we only went like six minutes seven minutes but people to the end they enjoyed it and it's called the lonesome pine specials look it up i will definitely on, look it, it up it, it, it's on youtube one of the damnedest things you ever did in my life you know like like i i did a podcast one time and i never really it's called down and dirty with dutch and it just stopped. And one reason was I got kind of disillusioned with the podcast business because I don't, I didn't yet, I didn't know what I was doing. To tell you the truth, nobody and nobody offered any advice about how to do it. <clears throat> they said, "Oh, just go in there and tell some stories." What the fuck? I said, "Well, don't we need to plan this a little more?" Well, no, you know, whatever. But I. I was doing it, and all of a sudden, the guy who owned it, uh, MLW, Cord Bauer, he called me up and he says, well, we, we, we got a complaint. I said, why? On the name of your show, it was called Down and Dirty with Dutch. So I said, why? He said, well, I'm going to send you all this stuff. And they wanted me, this, these people were legally telling me to change the name of the show because it conflicted with theirs. And the name of the show was Down and Dirty. That was just the name of their show. And it was a truck racing podcast. It's called Jim Beaver Motors, Motorsports. Never heard of it in my life. And they says that it creates confusion in the marketplace. Well, I sent them a, well, I hadn't sent it yet, but I've written it. I started to say, anybody that confuses goddamn truck racing with professional wrestling, they need to be confused. Okay, that fucked up. <clears throat> and I was going to tell him, no, I had this name a long time before you had it. Down and Dirty is actually should be in public domain, to tell you the truth. Right. And his name is just Down and Dirty. My name is Down and Dirty with Dutch. And I started that with Smoky Mountain Wrestling back in 1994. Sure. And I had tapes showing this is Down and Dirty with Dutch. I've already, it's grandfathered in. 
And he showed me his damned, uh, I guess his patent or his trademark or his copyright or whatever. I don't give a shit. But I mean, that's one reason I kind of I stopped it because I wanted to find out a little more about it. But I am I am planning to restart it sometime in the next couple of months. So I want you to listen to it. Looking forward I'm to it. Talk hey, about you. Uh, I'm gonna talk about you. There's nothing interesting to say about me. Hey, before we let you go, and I appreciate your time. Tell me a little bit about working in TNA. I was there with you a lot of the time as well. And uh, tell me about some of the challenges and some of the the things that you're proud of. Well, I don't have time. <laughs> It'd take me like a week. You know, you had two TNAs. You had the the, the original one, which was a fucking mess, but was actually much more successful than the reincarnation of it. And in two thousand, when did uh when did Anthem take over? Impact. When was that? Two thousand seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah, two thousand. That was a mess. That was a mess. It really was. So. But they, but I will say this: they paid me every week, you know, and I didn't work hard, you know, for those jobs where I like <laughs> that you don't really got to go to. <laughs> they just send you a check. Uh, I kind of like that, and they treated me good. I just didn't. It was just, uh, it was almost like the game that couldn't shoot straight. You know, you had all kind of different philosophies on the on the booking committee, and and we we can never get. We could never get one straight. We the, the the company didn't have an identity at all. Sure. So it just it was more. It was, it was actually fun. I didn't I didn't really do that much. Actually, I tried to hide toward the end. <laughs> and I just disappear. I'd go to TV and I'd disappear. And you know what they would say? What's that? Nothing. <laughs> Hell, nobody even asked for me. <laughs> nobody just say, "Where's Dutch?" Hell, I was in the back doing something. Talking to Cornette, I think, or talking to somebody. Any thoughts? But, of, any thoughts about working with TNA? TNA has its own. It had its own set of problems, as 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 does every company does. Right. You know, it's inherent in its makeup. It has its own set of problems because of the characters and the and the personalities involved in it. But TNA toward the end was really getting to be. Uh, and you know, I never knew who was in charge of TNA, Andrew. I never knew. They, it's almost like, you know, most companies have the who's in charge of the chart. This guy's here, and this guy, right. these guys under him, and these. Hell, I never knew who was in charge. To tell you the truth. In the same way with Impact, when I went to Impact, I didn't really know who was in charge of that place either. Because who knows? It's just one of those deals that you know. When sometimes you get in businesses that you're not familiar with. I mean, the, the investors. When they get in businesses they're not familiar with, you know, they don't know what you're doing. So, and the tone is set from the top. So unless the top has a tone, so you don't have that problem. WWE, they know where the power is. They know where the throne is. They know where the king is, and it all comes down from him. So, but these other companies, and he was he was with TNA and he was with Impact too, right? For a little while, yeah. And they just had no tone. They just you didn't know who was in charge of it. So how'd you get along with and something? How'd you get along with Russo? How'd you get along with who? Russo. Who? Vince Russo. No, I got along with him. You know, I get along with everybody. What are your thoughts on working we with him? Well, he just fiddle, you know, on the on the philosophical side of wrestling is just we're, we're we're on opposite sides. See, one thing about Vince, he's a hardworking guy. But he has too many ideas, and he puts them all on the same angle. <laughs> That's about as best I as mean, I've ever heard it explained. 
No, he has a lot of ideas. If he would, if, you know what Vince didn't have, and I've told him this. Vince, you have no pacing. You have no, you don't know about sequence. This happens here. Let it sit by itself. Don't throw 9,000 other things behind it on that same show. Let them think about this. Then now you advance it the next week. You show what happened, then you do something. Now you got a little bit of a linear angle going. But sometimes he would just throw it and say uh, say an angle that you could, you know, realistically stretch for a month to a pay-per-view or say five or six weeks. You know, stretch it out. Let it tell its own story. Let it almost be organic on its own. Let it grow on its own. Instead of trying to throw all the fertilizer and all the water and all this and expect it to grow overnight. It's not going to do that. But he didn't know what I was talking about. Hell, I didn't know what I was talking about. I knew more than he did. But <laughs> I thought I did. I'm a big believer in it. But, but, but he works hard. He just doesn't know how to pace it. Yeah, it's it's about the best explanation. One time we had this we had this cage match, and then we had handcuffs in the cage match. He said, "I tell you, why don't we put barbed wire on the top?" I said, "Well, why would you add barbed wire on the top? You got all the other things. What's gonna if somebody's handcuffed? How's he gonna get up on the barbed wire? Anyway? I mean, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> really? I walked in one day and I, I tell this story, and this is not this is I, I tell this in my book too." I go in there one day in Orlando, and it's a hot day, and the tapings are over, and we're all sweating, and he's sitting over there in the chair, and he said, Dutch, I just don't get it. And I said, don't get what? He said, you know, this this heel babyface thing. <laughs> I said, what? He said, no, I don't, I don't get it, this heel babyface. So I just don't get it. I said, well, Vince, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. It's kind of the standard for Every play and every movie and every book ever written, protagonist, antagonist, I mean, you, you know, you got to pick a side. He said, I don't get it. He said, you know, they, I said, Vince, they wrote a book on it one time. He said, they did. I said, and I'm sure, I think you've read part of it. Really? What is it? I said, the Bible. And then I got up and walked out. I don't know if he got it or not. <laughs> it's good versus evil is what it is. I should have explained it like this. Okay, you take two baseball teams and you don't give a shit about either one because he's a baseball fan. You don't give a shit about either one. So you got to pick a team because if you're just watching two teams play baseball, it's no good if you're not cheering for one of them. You got to pick a side. I said, so why don't you just, but you don't know either one of these teams. So why don't you pick the ones that you like the uniforms better? Yeah, that's red and blue. I like that. And the others is gray. I don't like that shit. So this is my team. Now, you can cheer for them. You can root for them. Because if you're not rooting for anybody, hell, you, it's, it's no, who's going to sit out there in hot sunshine in, in, the, in, the, in the summertime and not cheer for anybody? Because you got to have a team. Absolutely. But anyway, I don't know if you got it or not. But anyway, we need to do this again sometimes, man. Anytime. Uh, there's still a whole bunch of questions that I had that I skipped over. So uh, anytime you want to come well, back. We'll do, it. We'll, we'll, we'll do it again. Uh, it so. might be my pleasure. It's an honor to have you on here. And uh, thank you very much for uh, your time and the stories. And uh, one of the best storytellers in the, the history of the wrestling business. And uh, I thank well, you. I'm, I'm, let, me give, let me get this out. I'm writing another book. I haven't come up with a title yet. But I'll come up with some bullshit. <laughs> but... Uh, and I hope, it, and I wanted it to already be out, but I needed to add a little more to it. But and it's it's stories too, but this takes more of a personal flavor because you know 
I hate to read books. I just tell, you know, in a linear fashion. I'm all over the place. I've already explained that. But this will tell you more where I came from. I told more today, and I've told a lot, a lot of times on podcast. That's exactly where I where I came from. But uh, and if you want to get a hold of me, I'm on I'm on Twitter and uh, Dirty Dutch. I don't even know my Twitter handle. I think it's Dirty Dutchman. Dirty Dutchman one. I think that's it. Then I have another one. I don't even know what that is either. But if you want to contact me via email, anybody, Dirty Dutch Mantel, with two L's, at gmail.com. So get a hold of me. If you got a question, I'll see if I can answer it. If not, you know, I just don't, I'll just delete it and let it go. I can do anything else. So. <laughs> well, again, thank you for your time. And as somebody who loves. Uh, hearing the stories from the road, I, I thank you for keeping those alive. Because uh, at some point they're going to well, go. You learned you you learned some things today you didn't know. Yeah, absolutely, a lot of stuff. Okay. But and unless this is passed down, it's just like I said, it's it goes into the dustbin, the dustbin of history, and nobody ever know about it. It's just it's just lost. <clears throat> so anyway, I enjoyed it and uh, keep me in your keep me in your book and give me a call some down we'll do another one. I want to thank Dutch, and there's a thing in wrestling called Dutch-isms, and uh, you probably heard a lot of Dutch-isms, quote-unquote, in that interview, and so I hope you enjoyed it. To me, it was like sitting around at the uh, big table at TNA uh, listening to Dutch hold court. That's what he did, and, uh, you know, we'd have Mike Tanay there and Don West and Keith Mitchell and Terry Taylor, and we'd just sit around the big uh, conference table and listen listen to Dutch tell stories and give not only stories, he's talking about politics. He's talking about sports. Just give his thoughts on life. And uh, if he ever does a podcast again, uh, I suggest that you uh, check it out. If he, I would check out his first two books. If you haven't already, as a matter of fact, I'm going to order them and uh, be on the lookout for his third book. And that vice series sounds really cool uh, about Devon Eriks and the, who we talked about a couple of shows ago and, and the bruiser Brody and the, screw job and all that that sounds like it'd be a lot of fun so looking forward to that as well by the way dirty d mantel with two l's at the end is how you follow dutch on twitter dirty d mantel so check him out if uh, you want to follow me on twitter and you don't already at david penzer all one word or at penzer ringside and um looking forward to doing this again next week with another great guest and i hope you enjoy dutch want to thank dutch a lot and until next time i'm david penzer still sitting ringside follow david penzer on twitter at david penzer also make sure to follow the show on twitter at penzer ringside you've been sitting ringside with david penzer on radio influence This is an MMA report with Jason Floyd, Quick Fix, on Radio Influence. Whatever you think about Khabib Nurmagomedov, his tweet yesterday was spot on. Where after, you know, I mean, look, and, and Khabib knew what he was getting. I mean, he already knew the suspension, what the fine was going to be. And, and we can talk about, you know, was the fine too excessive? But his, his uh, tweet was, quote, politics forever. And he is 1,000% correct. What yesterday was, was politics. It was commission politics. And kind of one of my issues, like on the John Jones aspect of this is, you know, Anthony Larnell, who's the... um, 
you know, the league commissioner, he, he runs the commission. Let, let's just call it what it is. It, you know, he, Bob Bent may have that title, but Anthony Marnell really runs that commission. They wanted USADA to be transparent with California in December. But this is a question I have not heard anyone ask them is was Nevada transparent with California? I have my perceptions. I don't know if my perceptions are a reality, but that's the question that I feel like no one's asking is, did Nevada pick up the phone and call Andy Foster and tell them what they knew? It's hard to say yes, right? (laughs) When you look at this landscape from afar and you see the way things went down, it felt like the way Nevada really dropped the ball in real time during John Jones's fight was communication, both within the commission, I mean, they could have met. They could have made this decision. It's not like there's a whole lot of new information. In fact, there's probably no new information from when John Jones's license wasn't, I guess, approved. And from now, from when John Jones fought in California and from now, there was no new information. It's just they weren't able to meet to decide, which is, like, crazy. This definitely felt... Yeah, like our performance, and that's usually what we get when we watch these Nevada commissions. It's annoying. It's it's super long. It feels like there's not a lot of information. It feels like our performance, and their performance never looks well. You're never watching this and being impressed by the commission. The MMA Report with Jason Floyd can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and RadioInfluence.com.